Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is AppSats Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are AppSats certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis. There is nothing we won't talk about. So I've got Amy on the line. Amy, welcome to the show. What's your question? Well, I have a question about what um, healthy sexuality looks like when Mm. a sex addict is in recovery. One of the things we know about research and sex addicts is that they don't necessarily want sex with their own wife. And so to me, that says he's in really good recovery because he does want that with you. He has been two years sober. He has been in three facilities. And I suspect that's how he's wanting closeness with you. You know, that's always such a a dicey thing because I hope I made it clear in that promo that sex addicts who are not in recovery um, have difficulty with intimacy and they truly are not sure that they can perform. They've trained their brain to want a certain um, stimulant for their arousal template. And so that's why oftentimes sex addicts who are not in recovery don't have the ability to have intimate relationships with their wife. Now, that being said, I've worked with plenty of sex addicts that can't. So this is not um, 100% true. But more often than not, I see this coming up, and that's why I bring it up to clarify, because sexuality, when you have found out, discovered that your husband or wife is a sex addict, um, and, and you've gone through that trauma, it taints and contaminates uh, your sexuality with that person. And you can get that back, but sometimes that's the very last thing that really um, can be normalized. Because you got to have the trust. you got to develop that to the best of your ability. And you and I both know that if you're listening to this show, you're either a clinician or a coach that works in this area or You're a partner or a sex addict, and you want to understand this issue. So I appreciate you listening to the show. I'm Carol Jurgensen-Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach. And I make it my mission every week to bring you quality people who have a lot to offer and to share with our listening audience so that you can have as much information as possible because information is power. I mean, it's important and it empowers you. But you do need to get it from the right sources. And appsats.org is the right source. Appsats.org is an organization that trains clinicians and coaches how to help partners heal. And we work from understanding that this many of the experiences that a partner has is and are trauma-based and that we have to work on for safety and stabilization first and foremost. And then 
as he or she, I said she, but I also see male partners, um, as thinking stabilization get better, wow. There are all sorts of positive things that can happen in a relationship between two people that where change is occurring. And that's my hope, strength, and recovery. I really believe that you can get through this if you want to, at least individually, and hopefully the coupleship, if that's what you choose to do as a partner. And then even though it may feel at times like your relationship with God or, you know, Allah or your higher power has been seriously fractured, it also is a time that you can actually strengthen that relationship and solidify what you know to be true. But it takes some time because the brain goes offline, and and that's where we as partner coaches and clinicians can help you heal and get it back online so you can decide how can you grow stronger from all this? What has this taught you? And that's so, so, so important. I feel so blessed to be working in this situation because what I know to be true is that everybody's in a different spot. You know, I just did a YouTube that I put, I published today under Sex Help with Carol the Coach. And it was inspired by one of my couples who they're really in good recovery. He's done his work, and he has not slipped or relapsed. Um, And he has a year's sobriety, and she's done her work. I hate that she has work that she's had to do, but to get through this trauma, she's done what she needs to do. And unfortunately, from time to time, she still gets triggered. Of course, I was explaining that this is brain science, and when the brain's been traumatized, it can take anywhere from two to five years to really, truly heal. But if if a couple's in good recovery, it is normal to still have triggers. And what I pointed out to her was she was, like, so frustrated. What am I going to do? When is this going to be over? Is this ever going to end? And I said... Yes, it's going to end. I mean, they'll occasionally come up, but you'll be able to know that that was just a thought and move it aside and go on with your day. And in in retrospect, as I look at the work you've done over the last year, you are way farther ahead than a lot of other partners, and you're already doing a good job of telling yourself that. As a matter of fact, I told her, you know, your triggers are way less intense, they're definitely less frequent, and you have amazing skills that are helping you to heal quicker, easier, and faster. And I know it doesn't feel that way because you're still the recipient of the triggers, but you're doing amazing work. And so give yourself some grace and know that there's lots and lots of progress that's been made. 
And every time a trigger comes up, ground yourself. Do what you need to do to move it aside and make room for a much more positive and powerful thought. And that's what I tell her. Now, you know, triggers her. So I know that she's sitting there thinking, yeah, I just don't want to have them. But, you know, just in the same way, I I was rollerblading this summer. I'm a rollerblader. I was a rollerblader. I rollerbladed for probably 30 years. And my blade stuck. Something got in between the wheel, and I did a deep dive into the concrete. I mean a deep dive. And my glasses broke, my sunglasses. It was 6.30 in the morning. My glasses broke, and they dug into and around my eyeball. Not on my eye, but around there. And I had to have 19 stitches. And so that was June 30th. And here it is, January 17th. And I still have some soreness above my eye, even though everything got stitched up and healed. And actually, I look pretty amazing considering the damage that it did. And I have to tell myself, that may be sore for a year. But one of the things I do know is when you break a bone or when your skin repairs, it's actually stronger than before. You break a bone and that area that cracked is stronger. Um, And same with scar. A scar leaves scar tissue and that protects the wound. And so I just want to say metaphorically that there are lots and lots and lots of ways that you're stronger if you're a partner. And I would encourage you to write out what some of those ways are so that you remind yourself that I don't want to say some good things have come out of this, but that you are resilient and you are a person who can make some positives out of very, very, very traumatic situation. That's what I have to say about that. Listen, we need your help. If you're a, a listening audience, that I know you are, um, you're growing exponentially every week, would you tell other support groups, online groups, tell your counselor that you're listening to this show? Because I truly think this is one of the best partner shows available to you. And I love that it's free. You know, boy, podcasts are amazing. I just absolutely adore that. And because we want to grow. And we want to grow clinicians and coaches that um, maybe don't even know that there is this partner-sensitive approach that we use clinically in sex addiction and partner betrayal. So I have never gotten on the air and asked for your help, but I would love for you to share with anybody that you find pertinent. Let them know about our show. And if you know somebody who wants to be on the show, I just had an email this morning, and it was a woman who listens to my other show. And she said, hey, Carol, 
I think you need to do a show about webcam models because they have serious problems. A lot of them have been abused. Um, they market and make, make, they create compulsivity. I would like to be more educated about this, and I think your listening audience would too. And so one of the things I said is, well, I will consider that as a topic. How about if you come on the show and talk about what you've learned? See, one of the things I really believe is that my listening audience has a lot of skills. I have never, ever in my life of therapy ever seen people that read more fervently, watch more videos, and find the best resources than partners of betrayal. And so if you've got something that you want to talk about, you are welcome to use me as your own personal life mental health therapist and coach for the hour and really get some help with, you know, your personal situation. So feel free to email me at carol, carolthecoach.com, and know that I am available for you. I tease uh, my listening audience and, and say, you know, I'm not going to keep talking to you every week. you got to work with somebody face-to-face for that, but I will be more than happy to dialogue with you about concerns that you have. Like today, we're going to be talking to Jacob Porter, and he is a shame specialist. And he wants to talk about, you know, what a crummy feeling shame is. And it is recognized as one of the most personal and painful emotional experiences ever known to man or woman. And how do you work with that? You know, is there such a thing as good shame? Is it all about bad shame? And and so I asked Jake Porter to be on the show. I'm really excited and and I guess I want to say, hey, Jake, welcome to the show. Hi, Carol. Thank you for having me back. I'm really excited to be here. Well, yeah, you know, this is by far the toughest emotion to regulate if you're a sex addict because you watch the devastation that you caused in families and, and with your partners. And yet what I'm seeing more and more and more of is shame the partners feel about are they doing the right thing? Are they should they be staying with the addict? Are they sending a bad message to their family as a result? Should they talk to people about it? Or even what's wrong with them that the addict made the choices he or she made? So I thought if you didn't mind, I would love for you to talk about what you believe the definition of shame is and, more importantly, what your experience is with your clients um, on how to work through it. Yeah, absolutely. I um, this, this may sound kind of strange, but I love shame in that I love to talk about it. I love the topic of it. And uh-huh. that's because it is so universal. Every single person, um, to some degree or another, I, I think has, has felt shame. Unless, unless you have some severe cognitive deficiencies or issues. But most of us, it, it's a universal feeling. And it's, so it's, it's something that can actually level 
the experience between addicts and partners because you're totally right. Each has their own shame to deal with often, and uh, there are a lot of sources for that and a lot of ways to work through it. Um, you asked for a, a definition. Um, so there are a lot of different ways to think about shame. I'll, I'll give you the one I'm working with here, how I usually talk about it. And I say that shame is a relationally driven emotional experience of feeling the pain or the fear of disconnection due to unworthiness. So I know there's a lot in that, so i kind of like to unpack that, if that's okay. Absolutely. Um, so first of all, it's, it's relationally driven. Shame is always about connection with others or disconnection with others. It, it doesn't exist within a vacuum. So, you know, I might, I might be happy about something kind of all on my lonesome, but shame, even if I am physically alone in that moment, I'm feeling it because of some relational implication. It's, a, it's what we would call a pro-social emotion. It, it, it drives us in our social connections. And, and then the other that I would highlight there is that it's this weird, intense mixture of sort of a pain and a fear. Both, both of those are, are, are tied up in there. That's, that's really rooted in this idea that we're not worthy of connection. There's something wrong with me that's going to keep me from getting the connection that I want and that I need. And I feel the pain of that. I feel the fear of that. That's shame. Um, does that make sense? Is that too too hairy? No, I think that fits. Um, and can you share what some of your clients believe is wrong with them that makes them question whether they attracted the Absolutely. shame? Sure. So um, for for many of our clients, uh, especially our are addicts, and you know this, Carol. Um, it's not universal, but but many addicts uh, have experienced trauma in their lives, and often it's early trauma, maybe of a sexual nature, but maybe not. Well, one of the things that we know happens around early trauma, particularly relational trauma. So, if parents were uh, emotionally or physically abusive or even neglectful, even just not providing the sort of emotional nurturing and that, that, that warm experience of being mirrored and known and, and, and held in another's mind and heart. Without that, um, children begin to, to develop ideas about themselves. And uh, Patrick Carnes, for example, when he identified the four core beliefs of sex addicts, one of, one of those beliefs is if anyone really knew me, they, they wouldn't love me. They wouldn't accept me. They wouldn't think I'm okay to be in relationship. And so, um, so for a lot of addicts, it's, it's that hidden part of themselves and thinking that they can't be fully known that is showing up in addiction. And, and then the addiction itself 
creates consequences. You mentioned this earlier that provoke that shame even more that seem to reinforce this message that, yeah, see, I am a bad person. I, I can't be known. I can't let people know what I'm doing because if they knew, they wouldn't love me. They wouldn't be in a relationship with me. That, that's, that's sort of a broad overview of many addict experience. For, for partners, betrayed partners, there are so many ways that, that shame can show up. Um, sometimes, as, as you know, addicts can blame their partners for their behavior. They can, they can scapegoat them. They can turn it around. They can gaslight them and point the finger, finger at, at their partners, and they can say, well, you this and you that, and you're the reason uh, I had to do this or that. And, and, and you and I know that's not true, but if, a, if, if someone has heard that for a long period of time, they don't have their full understanding of reality and their pieces of the, the addict's behavior that are hidden – they might start to believe that in some way. So it can come from, from the addicts themselves. Our society can, can send that message that, that it's a woman's fault if, if a man strays or vice versa, you know, it can go either way gender-wise. There are therapists who I think are probably really uh, well-intentioned, but they don't understand sex addiction and they don't understand betrayal trauma. And I can't tell you how many partners I've worked with who have some really sad stories of of getting further traumatized through the treatment of a of a therapist who doesn't know. And then also sometimes partners have their own um, stuff from their families of origin, their own lingering residue of some some shame from early on that can be uh, activated or exacerbated because of the betrayal of a partner. So there are a lot of different sources for that shame. Now, Jake, I'm just curious. Can you remember the other three core issues for a sex addict? Because women wonder this all the time. What might be feeding into my husband's addiction? So you said the first one is um, I'm not really good enough. What are the other Has anyone ever really – yeah, if anyone ever really knew me, they wouldn't love me, so I can't be known. Um, okay, let me let me see if I can get them all. I know another one is that um, uh, my greatest need is sex, and that is certainly usually not a a conscious thought on the part of addicts. I'm, they're not. That's not happening at a real high level of thinking in the brain. It's much more primitive than that, but their behavior certainly shows that their greatest need is sex, or so they believe. Um, another one is that no one else will meet my needs. No one else will meet my needs. So if my needs are going to be met, I have to meet them myself. Um, and that's one reason why um, why it is that often are loners and they are intent on you know, absolutely keeping secrets and, and not asking for help um, until, of course, they get into recovery. And then the uh, the fourth one, I am honestly, I'm blanking on it. I bet it will come to me later, though, Carol. Do you remember it? No, I was I was excited to think, but I, I, if it comes to me, I'll tell you what I if I it comes. Yeah. Up. 
yeah, it'll come to me, and, I'm sure. And so now I'm I'm wondering, you know, is there such a thing as healthy shame? I mean, you said you love shame because you love talking about it, and I, I believe that you love to normalize it and to help people work through it. Is there such a thing as healthy shame? I mean, is shame always bad? That is a great question, and uh, this is one where I can, I can pick some very collegial, uh, good-hearted fights with other colleagues because there is a big debate uh, within our field about shame and whether or not there's a such thing as healthy shame. Um, I happen to fall on the side that says, yes, there is a such thing as healthy shame, but, but if I can, I'd like to real quickly kind of just tell your, your – uh, listeners, both sides of that, you know, some folks draw this hard line between shame and guilt, and they say shame says I am bad, guilt says I did something bad, and I think that is true. Um, that is certainly true, but but I don't think it quite goes far enough um, because I do think within the shame side. There is a healthy shame as long as we don't define it just oversimplified as I am bad. And in fact, there's a lot in developmental neurobiology and anthropology that would tell us the difference between healthy shame and unhealthy shame. Healthy shame, in my mind, um, tells me when I have, and this is my own wording here, cross a boundary of humanity, okay? So when I act in a way that we might call shameful or shameless, um, then I'm going to feel some shame. So if I get really puffed up and I talk down to someone, I'm, yeah, I might feel some guilt about that, but if I get some awareness of it and I recognize, you know, I've violated a boundary of humanity, I I put that person down. I treated that other person as less than human in that moment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel a little bit of shame, and this is the key in my mind with healthy shame. Healthy shame, it goes, ooh, that's not who I want to be, and I self-correct, and it goes away. I might still feel some gnawing feeling in my gut of some guilt that it happened, but this ooh uh, around my identity, that's not who I want to be, it, it can kind of go away. So, you know, we, we want a, a certain level of awareness of shame in our society because shame is, what, shame is what keeps us being people who are safe to be in relationship with. Um, it keeps me in line with values. And when I, when I violate my values and start acting as a person I don't want to be, then I'm going to feel some shame about that. Unhealthy shame, though, very different. It doesn't, it doesn't come up around a violation of my own values. It's, it comes up when someone else is shaming me. It's, it's where I am the recipient of shame. And that could happen either explicitly actually saying shameful things to me like you're no good, you're an idiot, you're a loser, no one will love you. Or it could be implicitly 
through their behaviors, through withdrawing, walking away, never giving me attention that, that would be appropriate to the relationship. Um, and, and with those messages, they're sending me this, this message that I'm not worthy or I'm not fit for relationship. And, and with unhealthy shame, it doesn't resolve with changing behavior on our part. So if I'm feeling unhealthy shame, I can, I can try to change my behavior all I want, but it doesn't get any better. It might feel better for a minute, but it doesn't ultimately get better because the problem isn't actually um, with my behavior. It's, it's what someone else is doing uh, to me, putting on me. So that, that's how I would differentiate the two. Healthy shame, it's going to resolve quickly. It doesn't tell me I'm worthless. It just, it just says be the person that you're called to be. Be the person you're meant to be. Live in, in line with your values. Unhealthy shame does say you're bad, you're no good, you're unworthy, and it just it hangs there in your gut like a lump. It won't go away. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And, and I do believe that there are some people who experience chronic shame more than others. I, I would suspect part of that has to do with their upbringing and the traumas that they may have experienced. But why do you think some people experience chronic shame more than others? Yes, I, I think you're exactly right. The best answer that exists right now out there in the literature on shame um, is that some people are going to be more prone to chronic shame because of early experiences that happened at, at key moments of development. So it's going to usually, not always, but usually be related to, and here I'm, I might get a little bit wonky, but I'll, I'll slow down and, and try to define this as I go along. It's related to early on in our childhood, having attachment ruptures, so, the, so this feeling of connection with really important people, primarily caregivers, parents, having these attachment ruptures with them that were not fully repaired. And, and so if you think developmentally, shame is actually this, this experience, this neurobiological, neurophysiological experience that people have as, as little ones when we're little that is this very necessary stepping stone to develop the capacity for guilt. So it, imagine, imagine a, a little toddler, okay, and he's um, at the park, and uh, his mom's sitting on the bench, and the toddler's just kind of roaming around, and, and the mom sees this toddler reaching and picking a piece of gum off of uh, one of the pieces of playground equipment, and he's about to put this gum in his mouth. Well, what's what's the mom going to do? She's going to say, uh, "Little Johnny, no!" You know, she, her voice is going to spike, and she's going to be kind of forceful, and 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 she's going to try to stop him from doing that. Well, well, when when little Johnny hears that tone of her voice and hears those words, no, and he sees her face, his his brain is going to say, danger, danger, right? Uh, mom's mad. Something's wrong, and he's going to freeze. He's going to freeze up, 
and he's going to have this feeling of pain and fear and panic that, that mommy's not happy and mommy, you know, uh, is, is the source of life. And also we know about kids at that stage of development, they have a hard time separating the outside world from their internal world. So if mommy's not happy, something's wrong with me, okay? And, and all of a sudden there's this, the, these stress chemicals flood him and he freezes up. There's this um, cortisol dump of, of, of chemicals in the brain and, and all of this. But then mommy comes over and, and knocks that old gum out of his hand and says, no, no, that's nasty. But she pulls him close. And she hugs him, and she says, you're okay. I love you. It's okay. You're fine. I just don't want you to eat that nasty gum. That's not yours. That's, that's, that could make us sick or whatever. Well, now his brain goes, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. She still loves me, but it was that I was that gum. And it starts to build this ability to separate out me not being okay from this behavior not being okay. And there's a lot of research out there that's showing us that if, if there were some key moments where that little developmental process, and I used a silly example there, but it can happen in, in larger ways, or if it happens over time where there's not a repair that lets the child know, hey, you're okay, we're okay, I still love you, you're you and I are good. It's just that behavior you were doing. Then what happens is that the actually at the neurobiological level, the brain just really struggles to separate those two things out. That sets a lot of us up to feel that chronic shame. And I'm thinking particularly here about those addicts who carry that shame for so long, um, whether it originated in abuse or neglect or whatever, and they just struggle throughout their lives to, um, to shake that feeling that there's something wrong with them. Yeah, that makes great sense. And so it can be something as little as, like you said, almost a traumatic response to being yelled at and then with some afterthought, with a loving, supportive person differentiating, it helps build that person's self-esteem and their sense of the world. And yet, really, there are so many people that have been through some pretty horrific, traumatic um, events that they weren't allowed to talk about, they weren't allowed to process, and as a result, it just ends up feeling like a ball of shame that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and those are the people that experience that chronic shame, correct? That is correct. That's absolutely correct. And, and you know, what has to happen, um, I might be uh, moving ahead too quick. You can tell me if I am. But, but to heal that, we actually have to help our clients work through that developmental process that was maybe incomplete when they were younger. So a, a very practical way that that happens is, or, or can happen is in disclosures. So in, in my practice, um, we do a very particular way, method of, of disclosure. So a disclosure, in case anyone in your audience isn't familiar, 
uh, after a partner has discovered um, the betrayal, um, disclosure is something that we, we often help them work toward, and it's a process of truth-telling so that the addict can own up to the full reality of, of what he has done or she has done of that acting out history and can hand that to the partner uh, so that the partner can understand their full story, their their full reality, and know that they know what they need to know and 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 then begin after that. It's a starting point then for rebuilding trust. And and we do lots of, of disclosure intensives with folks from all around uh, the country, even even from around the world. We've had folks come in. And one of the things that we do in, in these intensives is a day will start with an addict telling the truth. They put it all out there. And you know that activates that shame, and they feel that shame. And then uh, after they've told it all and the partner's been able to ask all these clarifying questions, they go, they validate that with a polygraph. And then after that, they have this experience. They come back, and there's a process of, of, of letters that are read, impact letters where, where the partner describes the way that the, the behaviors have, have affected um, his or her life and, and in all these various realms of life, professionally, family-wise, emotionally, spiritually. And then the addict reads a letter acknowledging that. And so what's happening here? I'm intentionally turning on his shame, okay? And then... And then most of the time, our partners will then read a letter of encouragement. And, and it's usually much shorter, <laughs> but they're encouraging, hey, I see you worked hard in this process. I see you've gotten into recovery. Uh, I see you becoming uh, the man I want to be married to or uh, all these things. And, and she hands him that letter, and I have him hold in one hand her impact letter and his disclosure, and hold in the other hand that letter that says, I'm still here. I, I still have a lot of healing work to be done, but I'm still here. And, and I say, I want you to see that you told the truth. She's hurt. You've got a lot of work to do to rebuild trust. You've got a lot of work to do to prove that, that you're not going back there, but she's still here. And, and he has the felt experience of, wow, I didn't die. <laughs> and, and down at a cellular level, in, in the autonomic nervous system, there can be this shift of, wow, I might be okay. I did all of these things, but me as a person, able to be in connection, able to be in relationship, there's hope there. And so it's the same process that, that happens with a – with a toddler, but, but we're just helping complete that in adulthood. Um, I needed that. Uh, many of us need that. There's, there's no shame in needing to work through shame. One of the things that I, I'm impressed about is that that sounds like that letter comes after the disclosure, right? Yes, yes. And you provide an intensive so that you're working with both of these folks at the same time. That is correct. For the disclosure process. Okay. Because clearly I've heard of disclosures occurring, 
And then I've uh, also, and I'm, I do this myself, I have a couple weeks later the partner write an emotional impact letter, and then I have a couple weeks later the addict write a restitution letter. But it is missing that piece of, if you will, um, hope and recognition of the work that's been done that you say rebuilds that neurocircuitry uh, of shame for the addict. And I love that. Uh, is, is that something that your clinic um, created, or is that a model you used from somebody else? That's that's a model that I have been developing for a couple of years now. Uh, it's the couple-centered recovery model. Um, I always say it, this is not a, a model that can be universally applied. Um, we screen people for whether or not they have the, the capacity and the tolerance and, and the ability to do this in an intensive setting. Um, so for those who can, in fact, I'm, I'm starting one today. Uh, he's, he is currently at the polygraph examiner's office, and she's out to lunch right now. Uh, these folks, they, they're do, going through the disclosure today. In the morning, they're going to come in and do the impact letter process. Um, because they can. Other folks might need that couple of weeks period like you're talking about, but the same thing can still happen. And so for any of our clinicians and coaches that are out there uh, listening, um, there are a lot of ways to do this. One, one thing to do is to just be intentional about it. Think of it as a, as a long movement, as, as not diff- pieces of separate interventions or, or activities to do with clients, but um, these are movements in one symphony. And, and even if I have a few weeks separating the disclosure from the letter process, um, I still bring them back together. So I will, I will utilize some, uh, you and I actually, Carol, have talked before about EFT and we're big fans of of emotionally focused therapy. I'll use some of those techniques to help remember the disclosure and and bring that back up sort of bodily, somatically, and and have that stage then for uh, as a as a preparation for then hearing the impact letter. And I'll do that by reminding him, hey, let's talk about why you're about to hear this letter. Let's remember what it was. Do you remember sitting in this room two weeks ago? Do you remember the look on her face as you read your disclosure? Can you remember what that was like in your body? And so I'll, I'll, I can make a, a connection there somatically and neurobiologically uh, across time. It's, it's a situation where either they can't do the intensive of one day or multi days, or they just need that time to process. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so now, what do you believe is the antidote for shame? The antidote for shame is to do the exact opposite of what shame would have you do. Um, so every single emotion that we have has something called a an action tendency. Um, so every emotion... Has a, has a behavior that it would have us do, whether we act on it or not. So, for example, anger might tell me to um, 
you know, uh, make a certain gesture at uh, someone else on the road who just cut me off. That doesn't mean I actually go through with it, but there's an action tendency there. Or um, love or joy, I'm going to have a warm, open, expansive feeling in my chest Well, I'm going to open myself up and bring the person into that space like a hug. Well, shame's action tendency is what? So think, think about that. And um, um, shame's action tendency is to hide, to stay in the dark. Don't tell, ignore, pretend like it's not there. Um, keep your mouth shut, go away, disappear, get small. That's what shame says to do. Why? Because it goes back to that whole thing of, hey, um, if they really knew me, if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. So I have to keep this hidden or else, hey, they're going to go. So what I need to do instead is just the opposite because when shame is, is grabbed by our will, okay, so our will that knows our values, that knows – uh, who we want to be, how we want to act, what we want our lives to look like. I, gra- I use my will armed with my values. I grab hold of that shame. Then I wrap it up in words. So I'm going to actually put words to it. And I tell people, be specific. Don't say, oh, that thing I did. No, when I went to a massage parlor. So be specific. And then you put it in the light. And this is key. You put it in the light with safe, loving people who, who have the capacity themselves to tolerate it. That is what heals shame. It's not a logical fix. Okay, I can't think my way out of shame. It requires this felt experience of being known and yet not rejected, and in fact being received and accepted and loved even more. Well, that makes sense, and boy, that's true vulnerability, isn't it? Yeah, that is true uh, vulnerability for sure. Explain your definition of vulnerability. Sure. So um, I I actually really like how Brene Brown talks about vulnerability. Um, I've gone through her training. I'm a certified Daring Way facilitator, and she says that vulnerability is the courage and the willingness to engage that vulnerability is uh, daring to show up and let ourselves be seen. Um, it doesn't mean that that doesn't mean we share everything with everyone, right? Um, that doesn't mean I vomit my all my stuff uh, on every stranger. That's actually not vulnerability. That runs counter to vulnerability. So I would say that vulnerability is intentional that it is built up over time. It, it should be mutual. Uh, the only exception to that would be in a professional helping relationship. So with my clients, there's a one-way vulnerability and a one-way intimacy. But outside of that sort of professional helping relationship, you want to seek people who are going to be mutual in, in experiencing vulnerability. Um, and it's, so it's being true to who I am and being true to, to what my story is so that I'm not reshaping it or editing it or hiding parts of it. 
based on the fear that you're going to reject me for it. So I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to risk rejection. Vulnerability always comes with risk. I cannot have risk-free vulnerability. Uh, it's just impossible. So I've got to show up. I've got to risk that rejection of being truly known. And and Brene talks about the physics of, of vulnerability and the and the paradox of vulnerability that it's the last thing we often want to show others in ourselves, but it's the first thing we look for in others. And and then a, a, another way of saying that, or a slight variation of that, is that. Vulnerability, when we experience someone else being vulnerable in a, in a healthy, appropriate way, we're, we're drawn toward them. So when someone opens up and they share this intimate part of themselves, I, I feel myself move, move toward them. But what, I, what shame tells me is that if I am vulnerable with someone else, they'll move away from me. And so part of, part of the work of, of developing vulnerability and overcoming shame is taking that risk that it's not true, that, that what I've experienced on the receiving end of vulnerability, I'm going to experience on the giving end of it, which is that when done with healthy people and in appropriate ways, vulnerability is going to create connection. Well, absolutely, and that goes back to that original premise that Dr. Carnes talked about. If you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. And so vulnerability obviously says, I'm going to take the risk to show you who I really am and see if you'll still love me. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and that looks um, that can look like a lot of things. You know, for for a recovering addict, it might be, saying to to his partner who he has hurt and he knows he is hurt and he he really doesn't want to hurt her anymore but he's so afraid of doing it more that he actually ends up hurting her more and so it might be vulnerability for him might be saying hey listen i know it looks like i don't care about meeting you in your pain i know it looks like um like i don't care that you're feeling hurt but the truth is that I don't know if I know how to do that. And I'm afraid if I try, I'll fail. I'm afraid of not measuring up and not being good enough for you if I actually try to sit with you and hold your pain and help you heal. You know, that's, that's a work of vulnerability for, for an addict. For a partner, it, it might be, you know, here she, she is. She's, she has used her voice and been ignored and not been heard for years and now she knows the truth and she understands better why and now it's the risk of using her voice again risking that he may not hear her again but still using her voice to speak up for what she needs what what she wants uh what she she needs uh, to rebuild trust in the relationship so vulnerability is essential both ways well, I agree, and certainly one of the things that I, I love about support groups is that it allows both addicts and partners to practice that vulnerability in absolutely safe ways. And you and I both know, Jake, when you practice something in a support group, whether it's 12-step or online or coaching or whatever, 
you then get to try it at home. And if it doesn't work, at least you've got the support of people back in the support group ready to hold you while you decide what you're going to do with that. Because let's face it, sometimes our clients are relationally challenged. Partners are relationally challenged when their brains have gone offline, been traumatized, and they're having trouble um, even regulating both their emotions and their thoughts. And then addicts obviously have been relationally challenged. They may have always had that intimacy disorder or this fracture in the relationship sure has contributed to it. So it is important to find safe people that you can practice this with if it's not quite possible or feasible to do it at home yet. Um, I, I see that we're almost at the end of time. And one more time, remind our listening audience, how can they contact you, um, find out more about the services you offer, and find out more about shame? Absolutely. They can go to our um, website. The website is Daring ventures.com that's d-a-r-i-n-g ventures v-e-n-t-u-r-e-s.com or they can email me directly and I I welcome those emails I'll admit sometimes it might take me 24 hours to to respond to an email but I do make it a point as best I can to answer every email I get and they can reach me by email uh, at um, jake j-a-k-e at daringventures.com got it well jake thank you so much because i i know that i believe in the five primary feelings being anger sadness loneliness fear and happiness and then i always tag on that there are two other feelings that are a little bit more complex and are a result of trauma and that can be shame and guilt. So mm-hmm. you've really done a nice job of explaining the difference in those. And I wish you continued success. You're such an advocate for partners and addicts alike. Um, keep me posted on the projects and, and things that you're doing. We'd love to have you back on the show. Well, thank you, Carol, and I appreciate you and your devotion as well to addicts and to partners and getting the message out there um, on their behalf and on behalf of of AppSats. So thank you so much for having oh. me. Oh, you're welcome. And isn't AppSats a wonderful organization? <laughs> sure is. I, uh, I have a, a colleague who's about to do the training. Um, super excited for him, ready to start getting him some clients as soon as he's done with it. So I'm, I'm always telling people, all, if clinicians and coaches out there, if you have not done the AppSats training, it is worth your time. Please do it. And it is really one of the most cost-effective trainings in the world. It, you know, is an eighth of the price of a CSAT training. So it really can help to um, help you to help partners, addicts, and the coupleship as well. So thanks, Jake. Have a great week. You too. Take care, Carol. All right. Yeah, we were talking with Jake Porter, and obviously he has a lot to offer. And I want you to know that um, you can reach him at jake at daringventures.com. His website is daringventures.com also. 
And thanks for being with us today. We'll look forward to checking in with you next week. Really appreciate you. And as I indicated before, let others know about us, would you? For more information, go to APSATS.org, the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, to find a professional in your area who is trained to help you after sexual betrayal.